0: privileged to, to be able to preach to you today. Uh, <clears throat> this, is, this is my final time as pastor, uh, one of the pastors at Rotherham Evangelical Church to, to preach, and it's so it's sweet, sweet to share this moment with, with Josh uh, and your baptism. Um, when I was trying to think about what I would like to preach, I, I was looking at some of the prayers that Paul prays for churches in the New Testament as, as a way of one praying for you guys and as another way of praying for the church I'm going to. And so then I thought, oh, why don't I, why don't I preach on one of these prayers? That would be um, a sensible thing to do. So that's what we're doing today. Um, I'd encourage you, if you do have a Bible, to, to keep it open. Uh, this, one of the things we like to do at, at Rotherham Evangelical Church is preach the Bible. And so we, we look at the text and uh, we read it and then we explain it. And so this talk will be a lot more interesting to you if you're following along, because you'll be thinking what, what is he going on about, if you're not? So I'd encourage you to keep the Bible open, page 1173, uh, because I will be referring to it several times. One other kind of thing uh, that might be important for you is we do have programs, and I don't have the PowerPoint up, but we do have a little outline on the program. There are a few extra programs here in the second row, if you want to quick, quickly make a dash for the second row. But if you go on the back of that program, there's uh, a little bit of an outline to guide you through the talk. A year ago, this past Friday, we had the privilege of welcoming into the world our third child, little Hudson. Now, what's remarkable about what watching uh, w- the birth of your child is, is what it does to you inside. For months leading up to the birth, especially of the birth of your first child, people are always talking to you up and down, oh, you, you just have no idea what's in store for you, the kind of immeasurable joy and love that just springs up within you when, when you meet your child and hold this slightly ugly thing for the first time, but for you it's the most precious thing in the world. And while you know that to be true, you, you don't really experience the reality until it happens don't you? Here's the interesting thing about love, specifically the love of your own child. It's very real, but you can't see it or touch it. I'm not talking about the child, I'm talking about the love. <laughs> it, it's, it's not a physical entity, is it? In fact, some people would say there's no, really no such thing as love. It, it's just a, a mixture of chemicals reacting in the brain. And, and so you don't really love your child. It's just this thing happening in your brain. And you think it's love. Of course, that would seem to contradict our, our deepest intuitions and, and deepest sense of reality. And that's, people that would say that have often bought the lie that the only things that are really real in the world are things that are physical realities. But the Bible actually teaches the exact opposite, doesn't it? Some of the most important realities the Bible teaches are profoundly spiritual realities. The soul, your mind, love. They can't be merely explained on a physical level. They can't be tested in some kind of test tube. So they, so if we're going to know these kind of spiritual realities, they have to be revealed to us, don't they? Well, Paul is praying in this passage that Jane just read for us, that the church would see reality. The letter begins with this ecstatic, poetic account of all these blessings that we actually have in Christ. They're ours in Christ. And I want you to read them with me. We read them as our call to worship this this morning. It's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, so on the same page. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for the adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he freely given, has given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of the sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. It goes on for several more verses. Blessing upon blessing poured out on us. Hope for a resurrection, redemption, righteousness, sonship, inheritance, love, God's pleasure, glory, all these incredible things. And then in verses 15 to 23, Paul is praying that the church, the Ephesian church, would realize, would embrace, would, would come to experience all these blessings in their real daily lives. We can see his prayer in verse 16. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering in you in my prayers. Here's the prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul is praying, God, let them see reality. Open their eyes. Let let what is hidden to, to our eyes but yet is profoundly true and real, be evident. And so I don't know about you, but when I, when I read passages like this one, I, I'm, I'm tempted to think something like this. This is a pipe dream. Future hope, immeasurable riches, the power of the resurrection working inside of me are we not, especially people maybe who have gone to church quite a bit, a little desensitized to language like this? Does it feel like slightly over-hyped, spiritualized language? The kind of language that we kind of nod our head to at church, but doesn't feel incredibly real in daily life? You know, like... Christ might, or God might say, you, you, are, rich, you, you are rich beyond all, all measure spiritually. But it feels just slightly more real when someone comes up to us and says, here's a million pounds to invest this week. Go, go do what you want with it, doesn't it? That, that kind of hits us at a sometimes more real level, doesn't it? I mean, when you wake up this morning, next tomorrow morning and go to work, you, you, you probably just won't feel like you have the wealth of riches and, and, and immeasurable power of God surging through your body. And so it's very easy for us to just become slightly inoculated to this kind of language. I think that's precisely why Paul is praying this for us. Lord, give them the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, wisdom here for Paul is always, almost always connected to the word mystery. God gives wisdom... So that you can understand his mystery. And actually he brings, Paul brings both of those together, mystery and wisdom, in, in Ephesians chapter one verses 9 and 10. You can see him there. With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of His will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment. And here's the mystery: to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under christ the mystery is to bring is god's plan to unite heaven and earth now that sounds a lot like the lord's prayer doesn't it father let your will be done on earth as as it is in heaven meaning let your your rule extend over the earth until the earth becomes like heaven that's what he's asking So Paul wants us to have the spiritual gift of of seeing how God is planning to, to let his glory and rule extend over all creation. But Paul also asked that we believers, the church, would have the spirit of revelation. One scholar translates revelation like this. The ability to see things people can't normally see. I love the way he translates that because it's getting to what Paul's saying. Father, help us. Help us to see in our hearts, in our souls, what we naturally struggle to see. Now, now why do we struggle to, see, to grasp these spiritual realities? I think to understand this, you have to know what the Bible teaches about sin. Sin in the Bible is not simply about doing bad things. That's, that's part of it, right? but that's not most fundamentally what it is. In the Bible, sin is more fundamentally the the spiritual perception of your heart and mind going dark, opposed to the light. It's a distaste for the truth revealed by God. It's, It's a distaste for God's glory because you'd rather see yourself be glorified. And so Paul prays, God, send your spirit to shine the light in our hearts so that we can see, so that our, the eyes of our hearts are open, so that we can see what is difficult, even impossible to see, apart from you. So my main and my prayer this afternoon is that this church would see and experience reality that we would truly know God and his ways with us. And there are three realities Paul prays that we will grasp in this passage. Hope, riches, and power. You can read them in verses 17 to 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and the incomparably great power for us who believe. So hope, riches, power, those will form the three points of our talk today, and we'll look at the first two quickly and then unpack the third one a little bit more detail. <clears throat> so the first reality that Paul Paul wants you to see is the reality of your future. Verse eighteen I want you to know the hope to which God has called you. Now hope <clears throat> is that which is true, but at the moment, at the present time, unseen. Romans eight twenty three to twenty five. We who are the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait for the adoptions of sons. Why do we why do we do this? For in this we hope for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they've already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. So hope is something that's not seen, but is profoundly true. But what is the hope he has in mind here? It's verse 10. It's the summing up, the uniting of all things in heaven and on earth. It's hope of the resurrection. Now, why do we why do we need to be reminded of this hope? Because this world, right, and this life, we know this by experience are going to be filled with despair. Hope counters despair. To be hopeful is all about Waiting patiently, and even joyfully in the midst of despair. And w- how can you do that? Because you know the end is hopeful. See, the problem with this, is we can't hedge ourselves off from hope, right? P- or uh, hedge, hedge ourselves off from despair. We, we can't do that. We can't keep ourselves away from despair. But you can endure despair in this world. Now, there are two ways we often do this, right? One way to, he- to, to try to hedge yourself off from despair is, is to go the stoic route. S- in stoicism, the world is meaningless. And so what you do is you just emotionally cut yourself off from the world, off from pain and pleasure, and you endure despair by just becoming emotionally cut off. But the other way to endure is, is, is by hope. Hope acknowledges the reality of despair. Despair. But it joyfully and patiently looks forward with confidence, knowing the future is better and secure. And the hope we have that Paul is telling us, the real reality, is that one day Christ is going to unite heaven and earth. The second reality Paul wants us to get is this. It's the reality of your value. The reality of your value before God. Look at verse 18. Paul prays that the Ephesian church would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, I'll be honest here, I I misread this verse for about the first week that I was preparing for this sermon. I thought Paul was talking about the riches of the inheritance that we have from Christ, our riches, our inheritance. Now, that's a totally biblical concept. In fact, in verse 14, he does talk about the, the inheritance that Christ has secured for us. But notice that little word, his, before inheritance. This is why you have to read the Bible very carefully. He's talking about God's inheritance. Now, what in the world is God's inheritance? What is, I understand me inheriting these riches from God, but what does God is inheriting something? What is he talking about? Throughout the Old Testament, God's inheritance is always his holy and pure people. And that's why the phrase ends with the riches of his glorious inheritance, what? In his holy people. The people are the inheritance of God. And that means Paul wants us to understand this reality. If you are in Christ, friends, you are God's glorious inheritance. Verse 10 says, you are God's treasured possession. The prophet Zephaniah, looking forward, says, chapter 3, verse 17, that God delights in his people and that he even sings over you with gladness. God sings over you. Friends, that should wreck you with undeserved joy. That is sheer grace. And it's sheer grace because when God looks down at us, Luke, in his sin, he wants to obliterate you. So how do we move from a God who, by his perfect nature, wants to pulverize us to a God who sings over us. It's the same God, unchanging, not two different gods. How does that happen? The operative word phrase in this passage is, in Christ Christ. Later, you should count how many times the words "in Christ" or "in Him" show up in Ephesians one. What happens is when God looks at His Son, Jesus had a baptism. We just experienced a baptism. Jesus had a baptism as well. And when God looks down at His Son upon His baptism, He, he looks down and declares before the watching world, "This is My beloved Son. With Him, I am well pleased." But apart from Christ. God looks down at me outside of Christ and he says this this is my rebellious son my enemy in whom is my curse but when the father looks at me through the death and resurrection and ascension and intercession of his son Christ he looks at me united to Christ and he sings He sings because I'm attached to his son. He delights in me because I'm in his son who is delightful. And this makes, this changes everything. It means I'm valuable, not useless. It means I matter, I'm not insignificant. It means I'm worthy, not worthless. It means I'm delightful, not disgusting. In Christ, you are God's glorious inheritance, his treasure. It's amazing what this truth can do for us, isn't it? One of my favorite stories, actually, when I was like uh, 10 years old, for some reason, weird Christian subculture, I preached at like 10 or something like that. Um, I I didn't get saved for another 10 years, but anyways. Um, (laughs) I preached on the prodigal son. I loved the prodigal son story. Um, sorry, yeah. It's a rebellious son who insults his father, leaves the family, abandons the family, lives like a profligate, <laughs> wrecks his life, wrecks his world, wrecks other people's world, his worlds as well, grieves his father immensely. But when the son returns to his father, the son wants to repay him his father, doesn't he? What can I give you? What, what, what... What can I do to make up for this now that I'm home? And, and it's as if the father says, no, 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 no. I don't love you, son, for what you do for me. I love you. You're the inheritance. You're the treasure. And I imagine that son, it's a fictional story. We don't know what happened after that. But I imagine the freedom and joy that that produces. Hey, my father doesn't love me for what I can do for him. He didn't care that the fields haven't been plowed for three years. He loved, he loved me. for. He treasured me. And Christian, God, God doesn't love you for what you do for him. God doesn't love you for what you do for him. He loves you for who you are in Christ, in his son. The third reality and the one that Paul really lands on is, is the reality of your present power. The reality of your present power. Verse 19. Paul wants them to know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. Notice, th- this hope, these riches, this power, it's not some kind of generic willy-nilly power, riches, hope for the world in general. No, it's for... It's not a kind of given regardless of lifestyle or belief or religion. No, it's for us who believe in his Son. This happens in Christ. And then Paul goes on to describe what this power that's in us is like. It's resurrection power. Verses 19 to 20. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So, So Christian not only do you have the hope of the resurrection in front of you, he's saying you have the power of the resurrection inside of you. Now, now you might be thinking, Luke, it doesn't, it doesn't feel, it doesn't look like I've got the power of the resurrection in me on a daily basis. Uh, just doesn't feel any, my, life, my, my life feels nothing like that. I mean, if you're anything like me, your Christian life feels often quite pathetic. Same sin struggles, constant discontentment, <laughs> battling it, frustrated with your parents, frustrating with your spouse, frustrated with your child. They're all frustrated with you. At times, you really enjoy reading your Bible. Other times, it feels like you're reading the weather report. At times, prayer feels like you're communing, communing with the divine. At other times, it feels like you're having a conversation with the door. Luke, I know what the text says, but it just doesn't feel real at all. I get that. My life doesn't often feel very supernatural. But can I encourage you to have a little humility here and to reflect on what the Bible says you were prior to God's grace and power entering your life? So this is what we are apart from God's power in us. Ephesians 2, 1-3. Just same, same page. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Here it is. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the way of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of this air that's Satan, and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following our fleshly desires and thoughts. That's what your life looks like apart from God's power and grace in you. That's what it is. You you might think, I don't see it. I didn't see all that change. God's saying that's what it would be. And if it's not that, by God's grace, that's God's grace and power in your life. It's the power to say no to the world. It's the power to say no to Satan. It's the power to say no to the sinful cravings of your flesh. we're not completed we're not what we will be far from it but this resurrection power is already working inside of us it's also ascension power and subjection power read verses 20 and 21 with me it's the same power at work in you that seated christ at god's right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority power and dominion and above every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, that's Christ's feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. <clears throat> so this power, it's God's power, is power that seated Christ at the place of supreme honor, its right hand of God, the Father. Which way is that? <laughs> the right hand of god the father it's where he has authority to rule over all heaven and earth over every it's a power that subjects every other power every other kingdom of this world underneath it and that same power that put christ in a position of absolute authority is now available to the church for their daily life but there's a strange phrase at the end of verse 21 Jesus has been appointed head, supreme authority over everything in heaven and earth for the church. It could be translated through the church. I actually think that is how to take it, meaning Jesus' rule and authority is expressed through the church. And I think that makes the most sense because of the last phrase in verse 23. This is where the whole text is really moving. What power does God, what, sorry, what purpose does God's power serve in us? So what is God trying to do by empowering us? Where is the end game? What is God's resurrecting, all-subjecting power in us aim to do right now? What's the purpose of it? Why is he empowering us? God's power is at work in the church, that is, in the members of Rotherham Evangelical Church, to fill the earth with God's glory. And his rule now where am I getting this just follow me for this is getting just we're gonna bounce around for just one minute just stay with me first Christ is the one who fills everything in every way isn't that you see that phrase in the, the end of verse 23 Christ is the one who fills the world everything in every way with his glory now, how does he do it? In what way does he fill the world with his glory? Let's go to chapter 4, Ephesians. I think just one page over. Verses 8 to 10. Starting in verse 8. When he, Jesus, ascended on high, that means took the throne, had authority, received authority, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people, What does he ascended mean but that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens. That means received absolute authority. Why? In order to fill the whole universe. So that's telling us that the filling of the earth with God's glory ...happens by means of Christ being seated above everything and extending his rule and taking his rule over all creation. So the filling happens by his rule extending over everything. The one who has all power and all authority in heaven on earth... ...the one who is lord over all other lords and who is king over all kings... ...the one who is a scepter of righteousness... He, the one who, to whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, the one who rules perfectly with justice and with love, REC, Paul says, you are the fullness of that one. Do you see that in verse 23? Sorry, back to chapter 1. The church... Which is the body of Christ, is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. While Christ is not uniquely present in this world, Jesus fills the world with his glory, extends his rule over all creation by means of his church. What a vision for the church. What a glorious responsibility. What an incredible task. And guess what? You have the resurrection power to do this. The power he gives is not so much for the individual, but for the communal life. Local churches, from this passage, are the most important communities for establishing God's kingdom here on earth. What is that? The uniting of heaven on earth. On earth, let your will be done on earth as it already is done in heaven. Bring the harmony of your perfection in heaven and unity to earth. Join them so that your presence fills the world until the glory of the Lord has filled the whole world. Can you see it? Do you grasp the significance of this community—the weekly sermons and the singing, and the prayers, and the communion table, and the meals, and the small groups? They're not just—they're not just aimed at keeping us busy and sociable. That's not what we're about, is it? No. These are small, often fragile elements that bring Christ's reign. To the earth, and extend his rule throughout it. What those things are—all the fellowship, the the home groups, all this stuff—it's slowly inching us toward the time when heaven and earth will be united. That's what we're doing. It's significant, and the church is uniquely empowered for such a task. No other institution is given this kind of power, is it? Your school can't do this. Your family can't do this on its own. Your marriage can't do this on its own. Your Bible study at Starbucks or Costa can't do this on its own. The church can do this. And the church isn't given political power, is it? It's not promised military power. It's not promised cultural power. No, it's given subversive power against all the kingdoms that rage against Christ and his kingdom. It's a power that surges deep within your heart to help us display before the world Christ is our supreme authority. And so as we gather, as we gather to pray and to preach and to sing and to commune with God and one another, and as we scatter To care for the needy and to bear one another's burdens and to care for the, and to provide for the poor and for the vulnerable. And when we scatter to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, we are subversively opposing the powers that be by extending Christ's kingdom and his rule over the earth. That's what we're doing, it's significant. Do you believe that? Can you see that? Paul's prayer is that the eyes of your heart, what does that mean? Would be opened. Paul's prayer is that you would see things that are not easily seen. That's what he's praying. And yet these things are profoundly true and real. They're as real as the passionate love that I felt as I held my child for the first time. I'm beginning to slowly love the genre of fantasy literature more and more. I never used to appreciate it. I think I felt it was just, quite frankly, out of touch with reality. See, right, right? Fantasy literature? It wasn't until I realized that the whole point of fantasy literature, movies, whatever is to lay bare, to expose realities and truths that are not always obvious to see in day-to-day life. Fantasy literature is very much about reality. In the Chronicles of Narnia, when Lucy walks into the wardrobe in the spare room and very soon finds trees bristling up against her face and the, the soft crunch of the white snow on the ground, We're not intended to get the map out and say, where is this Narnia place, are we? (laughs) It's not the point. But we are meant to think, of course, this isn't all there is to life. We are intended to think, there must be something like this. There must be some deep good behind it all. There must be real things such as good and evil. There must be realities that we can't see but are profoundly true. Paul prays, and we must pray, Lord, open the eyes of our heart. Help us see the hope of resurrection. Help us experience the power of resurrection. Help us embrace the glorious vision that you have for your church. Help us see reality. Let's pray. Father, we we admit today that we are weak and that we are sinful. And we, we admit that part of our sin means we don't see things as we should. The light came into the world and we preferred darkness rather than light. And the only way we're going to see the light is for you to shine it upon our hearts. We pray that you would shine the light of your spirit of wisdom and revelation in our hearts so we can see things not easily seen. We ask all this in Jesus' name.